Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the People Who Surf Show. I am Chris Moore, your host, and very happy to be back with you after a little summer break. I'd like to start with a heartfelt thank you to all of you early adopters to this podcast, because when I started this thing back in the spring as a pet project, I honestly wasn't sure how it was going to be received. Needless to say, I've been completely overwhelmed with the positive feedback, and I am super grateful for all your responses, your five-star reviews, and your ratings, and I really, really appreciate it, because those go a long way to getting these episodes into the ears of like-minded surfers. So please keep them coming and keep telling friends about the show. Remember to follow us at People Who Surf Show on Instagram. And our website is peoplewhosurf.com. Now my guest today is Joe Sigurdsson, a remarkable man and the best kind of surfer. Actually my favorite kind, because he's always got a smile on his face and endless amounts of positive energy. Joe is the brains behind one of the most incredible fundraising events there is in surfing. It's called the 100 Wave Challenge. And on September 21st, the 10th annual 100 Wave Challenge will be taking place in Mission Beach, San Diego. Hundreds will be taking part, catching waves, and raising money for the Boys to Men Mentoring Program, co-founded by Joe and his partner 20 years ago. The idea is pretty simple. Surfers like you let your friends and family know that you're going to be participating, and you ask them to donate to your cause. Then you head down to San Diego, and you aim to catch 100 waves in a single 10-hour stretch. Now, it's a crazy fun day that brings out the best of the San Diego surfing community. Everyone there is fed, massaged, and pampered on the beach in between waves. And this year, Sean Thompson, Damian and CJ Hobgood, and Matt Archibald are just a few of the celebrity surfers slated to attend. You can bet there'll be more. Anyone willing and able is encouraged to participate. You can find out more by visiting boystomen.org, which is home of the San Diego chapter and their global headquarters. Now, the story of the 100 Wave Challenge is also Joe's story. It's about his remarkable journey and the incredible work he's doing saving the lives of at-risk boys, the majority of them who are fatherless. These are kids he's keeping off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs, and you're going to hear from one of them as well. Thanks to the surfing community, which is Joe's biggest supporter, the San Diego chapter is now running mentoring programs for kids across 38 schools, and that's growing by the day. They've proven so successful and gained so many supporters from counselors and principals and administrators that San Diego now wants to take this thing countywide. And that's just the tip of the spear. Now, Joe learned to surf back in 1968 at the age of 10 during a family trip to Mazatlan. He actually borrowed a board from the stranger camping next to him and got hooked. And while he had every advantage of a white middle-class kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, including loving parents and great siblings, he still managed to get himself in some deep trouble. We're talking addictions, some dealing, and a lot of self-destruction. You're going to hear about a lot of it in this episode. But before we go there, let's get a little more color from Joe on the 100 Wave Challenge. Yeah, it's in Mission Beach, you know, and and all you got to do is stand up. And um, I tell you what, Chris, the first year we had this big south running and it was five to eight. And Mission Beach cannot handle that kind of surf. I mean, it just, (laughs) I mean, it was hanging curtains. It was closing out like crazy. Oh, my gosh. And nobody could even get outside. (laughs) And most of the guys caught their hunter waves on whitewater. We broke three boards. Wow. Sent one guy to the hospital. He he got bounced off the bottom, broke his nose. (laughs) 
Anyway, I don't know if we're selling it very well right now. <laughs> that was the first year. We haven't had one like that since. But, but I like the idea of that challenge. And talk to me about over those 10 years, what kind of growth you've seen in the participants. The growth has been crazy. So I, we, the first year, I brought a bunch of my buddies, a bunch of my surf buddies, like 60 buddies mm -hmm. showed up. And we didn't know what we were doing. And I can tell you that we all had a ball. I knew everybody in the lineup, which was awesome <laughs> for me. I just paddled up and down the lineup and shook hands and kissed babies. You know, it was an awesome, an awesome day surfing with all my buds. And uh, we raised $70,000 that first year. The media has been really kind to us. And um, Scott Bass and Jeff Baldwin had the um, Down the Line radio show. They were really instrumental in helping us uh, get the word out to the surf community. Rally uh, troops down there. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And Bird Huffman, Bird Surf Shed down mm -hmm. in San Diego. Iconic. I mean, Bird's been yeah. in San Diego surf for Just 45 legend. years. Yep. I mean, he's the king of San Diego surf retail anyway. And so Bird's been super cool. He's been super generous because not only has he been a sponsor and helped us with our incentive prizes because we give away wetsuits and, and surfboards for guys that hit the $3,000 and $5,000 marks, but he's provided his space for our kickoff parties, for our wrap-up parties when we're handing out the gifts. So Bird's been awesome. Scott Bass has been awesome. Sean Thompson's been awesome. Damian Hobgood. There just seems to be like this... This sense of uh, of purpose and generosity around what we're doing. You know, we're taking surfing, people's passion for surfing, and transforming the lives of at-risk and fatherless young men. And it's like, I can spend all day catching waves and help transform entire communities? I mean... Yeah, yeah and doing I'm it in. together in a fun environment like that and be around people that you really dig and just that kind of vibe while you're doing such a good cause. And I want to talk about the cause here because obviously this is for your Boys to Men program that you've been running now for how many years? Uh, 22 years. Yeah. Which yeah. is just amazing. Yeah. And so it's at-risk youth that you're really trying to help. You're making a big impact in San Diego County, where you're from. You're involved with, what, over like 50 schools now? Yeah. And talk about the origins of the program and what yeah. got you into it from the start, you know, how it all formulated. Yeah. Well, from the very start, like, well, my, my I mean, parents were pretty amazing folks. Do you want to hear about that upbringing? I, I want to, well, we're going to go way into everything because okay. I know you've had a roller coaster life. Yeah. Right? I have. And it, which is why you can identify and relate to a lot of these children that you're helping. Right. So we could just jump right into that if you want to, because you've opened yeah. up to me in the past about yeah. what went on in your life. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, um, I had some amazing parents. They were both juvenile probation officers. That's how they met up in British Columbia. And then they moved down to San Diego. My dad took a job running a foster care facility. Okay. And then uh, he went and got his master's degree and uh, we moved to LA. We lived in Inglewood and he taught at USC, criminal justice administration and sociology. So a pretty amazing guy. And, you know, it was the 60s and civil rights was at the forefront. Mm. Uh, the Vietnam War was at the forefront. My parents were activists and they would take us kids to Exhibition Park and we would listen to anti-war rallies. You know, Joan Baez and Tom Hayden and a very young Jesse Jackson. And, 
in 66 during the uh, Watts riots. Inglewood was adjacent to Watts. And, right. Uh, You're right there. And, yeah. And uh, the Catholic Church down the street was taken over by the National Guard. And they set up, you know, like an armory down there. There's tents and there's... This is right by your house. This is like right by our house. I'm like eight, nine years old. And I'm thinking like the Viet Cong have invaded Los Angeles, you wow. know. And my parents were really in the heat of transformation and changing our society. And my dad, he also uh, ran a lot of diversionary programs uh, during the Johnson administration, the Great Society, and he's running after-school programs in Torrance and Santa Monica, Crenshaw District, and offering kids programs to stay out of trouble. And there was a Pulitzer Prize-winning expose out of the Omaha Sun-Times about Father Flanagan's Boys Town. And there was a bunch of corruption. There was a bunch of nepotism. There's a lot of abuse going on out there. Mm. And the Omaha Archdiocese had a black eye and they needed to like clean up the mess. And they did a nationwide search to bring in somebody to change and transform the culture at Boys Town. And that guy was my dad. And I was 16 years old. I just got my license and he moves us to Omaha, Nebraska. I, I could have killed him. Being dry docked in Omaha was a heavy blow for Joe. But within a handful of years, Joe's older sisters and their best friend Nan had moved back to San Diego. Nan was pretty much part of the family. She traveled with them on vacations and hung out at the house all the time with Joe's three older sisters. He was like her pain-in-the-ass little brother for a lot of those years. But when Nan got pregnant and things didn't work out with the father, Joe's three older sisters all moved to San Diego with her to help her raise the baby. Joe, naturally, began making regular visits to sneak in some surfs. Eventually, Joe's parents moved to Boulder, Colorado. He got a job at a Mexican restaurant, and that first winter, all the girls came out for Christmas. Even Nan and Erica, the baby, thanks to a donation from Joe and his dad. Now, Joe didn't know it then, but he was about to take off on the heaviest ride of his life. So... They came out for Christmas, and now I'm 18, mm. and she's like 23, <laughs> and I'm a chef at a Mexican restaurant, and the owners love me, and I said, hey, my family's coming to town. Can I cook a meal? They said, make whatever you want, you know, <laughs> and I also play the piano, and I sing. I'm a mm. entertainer okay. of sorts, and so we had a piano bar inside the restaurant, and I would play and sing for tips, so the girls came, and I did that, and I guess I didn't look like a kid so much anymore. Anyway, in that week that <laughs> that that Nan and uh, and Erica were there, Nan and I fell in love. Wow! In that week, I know it's like fairy tale stuff. It really is, you know. This is your and sister's friend, my sister's best friend. Right. I grew up. Okay. With, I met her when I was ten years old. Wow. Okay. okay. Now I'm eighteen. We fall in love in that week, and uh, I move to San Diego, and marry Nan, adopt Erica. And I go to work in a printing company out in Santee, California, and I'm by far the youngest guy on the shift. Uh, all those guys drank, and I wanted to fit in, so I started drinking with those guys. And uh, rapidly, the drinking led to some dope, and the dope led to meth, and the meth led to crystal. And the, in a very short time, my entire life spun completely out of control. So you're 20 years old now? Yeah, I'm 20, and I'm just starting to drink, and I'm just starting to smoke a little weed, and then I'm 20... Now, I think I was 23 when I did meth. And now I've got a pretty serious addiction. So now I'm dealing dope. So I'm at the beach. Extra income. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, I'm at mm -hmm. the beach with my kids. Now we have a, we have a son. Nan and I had another child. Uh, they're building sandcastles on the beach, and I'm selling weed in the parking lot. 
and I'm running dope back and forth between San Diego and LA. I got these connections. I got this poundage that I'm moving and I go to work for this Coke dealer. I'm a collector for, uh, I'm a, I was a substantial guy back then. And, and, uh, I, I was kind of substantial this, in the weight and physical yeah, yeah, strength yeah, yeah, department. Yeah. And, uh, I, <laughs> you were the muscle. I was the muscle. Exactly, dude. <laughs> and I was scared shitless too. Right. But, you know, I did what I had to do to get free Coke and the meth, man, that's just a freight train to the bottom, man. I mean, I, yeah. you know, so like between 25 and 28, I had totally spun completely out of control. I was leading a double life. Did your you, wife know all this stuff? Like how what? much was she aware of? She must've been aware of some of it, but I worked nights and she worked days. Mm. So I worked from four to 1230 running a printing press. And then I just was this nefarious character. Uh, during the day, and then I'd pull it together on the weekends and be a dad and be a husband and try to do the right thing. I mean, I so I, on the surface, would people have to look pretty hard to identify the fact that you were having that big of issues, or were you that good at covering up? I was pretty good. You were pretty good because I was pretty good. Yeah, some people think they're good, but they're not, and other people, you know, what I mean. Where were you on well, that spectrum? I, I think I was pretty good because while I was doing all those nefarious things, I was also a member of the La Mesa Citizens Review Board for the five-year plan for the city of La Mesa. So, AP, and how did that come about? That well, I, because job? of my parents and my civic uh, duty to create. Well, that's the funny thing is the irony <laughs> right? of like your, what your parents did for a living <laughs> versus the life you were living. You must have just been I, internally so conflicted. Oh, dude, that was it. That was the breaking point. I became somebody I didn't even recognize. So I would be uh, at City Hall meeting with the city council and the mayor over some planning issues. And then that afternoon, be running a couple of pounds up to L.A. Uh, to close a deal and then be back by four o'clock so I could punch in and go run a printing press at night. I mean, I was just going full I was bore, a full bore, buddy, full bore. It was crazy. It was, I, I was uh, out of control. Addiction is insidious you know because i was just selfish and self-centered and self-will run riot you know and i may have had like a little more balance than some addicts because mm. i was married with two kids and i had a job and i had some values instilled in me by my parents i actually kind of had like you were the good guy criminal i was a good guy criminal <laughs> and and here's the deal like i got to aa i was 28 years old and when I got there, nobody cared where I'd been or what I'd done. They had all been there and done the same thing. All they want to know is, what are you going to do to clean up your mess and how are you going to move yourself forward? And we suggest you do these steps. And then I had men that helped me and walked me through that process, which was fortunate for me because I had a base of decency that I could return to. I knew what it looked like to be a responsible, kind, generous guy. You understood the road to redemption and what it looked like. Yes, and uh, I was fortunate because a lot of addicts, you know, you come from these horrific upbringings and these horrific challenges and abuse and addiction and playing out for multi-generations, you know, gangs, violence, all this stuff. They don't even have a framework no, they to gotta, reference exactly. as to what is the right way to live your life and the right way to have a relationship and love and this exactly. and that. Exactly. Yeah, Correct? they've got to recreate themselves and recreate their reality. But yeah, so I got clean and sober and I had men that not only didn't judge me, but met me right where I was and loved me unconditionally and supported me and saw that I was just this 
loving child of this loving God, no more, no less. And they said, how are we going to bring this young man along? And they did. You know, I just got myself into enough pain where I knew I could no longer go forward doing what I was doing. So I got clean and sober at 30. So that's where, and that was- That my, was your journey. That was my journey. And that was like what I knew what it was to be a mentor. Because I had men that just met me where I was and didn't judge me and just said, what kind of man do you really want to be? What's in the way of you being that man? What do you need to do different? How can I support you? What does the accountability look like? And week by week, I was making changes and I was getting support. And they were listening. And they were listening and not judging me. There was unconditional love, you know? Of course, Joe's sobriety involved taking a serious turn inward taking a fearless moral inventory of your wrongs, well, that's a vital part of the 12-step process. It was also the stage that led Joe to his first Mankind Project retreat. Now, the Mankind Project is a global organization for men at any stage in life looking to rediscover their passion. Their weekend adventure retreats double as deep dives into the modern male psyche. They're an exploration of personal stories and the emotions and conflicts born from them. After attending a number of these retreats, Joe was liberated of his bullshit and empowered by both his potential and the power within it. And with his own son growing up fast back at home, the idea of boys to men began to take shape. So it was a very insightful look at how I'm affecting everyone around me in my life. And it was framed as a rites of passage, like initiation into manhood. You know, if you want to be a man, you know, you got to face your internal demons. You got to make some new decisions from a new place of awareness. And then with that new awareness, what are you going to do different in your life? So I thought this was a really great experience. I could have used this at 14, not 40. Mm -hmm. And so with my upbringing from these amazing folks and with my experience being a teenage father and working through that, my experience as a nefarious criminal and then a recovering addict and alcoholic, and then now having had this experience, I thought, we need to do something for these youngsters. And I had been sober long enough. I was like five years sober when I coached my son's Little League team. And I'm coaching, and the next day, there's four young men from the team at the house. They were there hanging out because I was their coach, and the other thing is, none of them had debt. So I kind of became the neighborhood dad. You know, we'd throw everybody's bikes in the back of my truck, and we'd go to the bike trails and go riding. Or we'd throw surfboards and boogie boards, and I'd take everybody to the beach, and I'd push kids into the waves and teach them how to surf and hang out or you know, I was the guy that you were play. the e-ticket, basically. I, I was, yeah. yeah. I, I'd play quarterback on both sides. I'd pitch right. to both teams. I'd strap on uh, <laughs> rollerblades, and I was just the dad that got involved with the kids. And and when those young men started hitting their teenage years, and I had done this mankind project retreat, I thought I'm going to start applying some of these lessons that I learned to these guys at this age. Joe's informal role as the neighborhood dad got to the point where moms were calling him just so he could have a word with their sons who were getting into trouble. His level of trust seemed to be their only way in. So Joe would do it and put his Mankind Project lessons to work. It was right about that time in the mid-90s when California's governor, Pete Wilson, began a campaign to find 200,000 mentors by the year 2000. 
He was allocating X millions of dollars for the effort, and a call quickly went out within the Mankind Project to create a more formalized mentoring program. Joe was all in, but he knew he'd need help. So he turned to the one man he knew had the chops to make it happen, his father. His father agreed to help and told anyone interested to show up at Joe's house the following Tuesday. That first meeting, eight men showed up, including Craig McLean, who became Joe's co-founder and serves as the executive director to this day. During their first 10 years, it was Joe and Craig who kept the whole thing going as they tried to emulate their Mankind Project experiences. The early retreats went well, mostly because it was Joe taking a lot of the neighborhood kids along, kids he'd already established a rapport with. In his ritual spaces, kids were encouraged to share their stories without judgment, and he taught them all about Joseph Campbell's famous hero's journey, helping kids identify where they were in the process. Word began to trickle out slowly through the community, and as kids began telling other kids, moms were doing the same. And then Columbine happened in 99. Ooh. Yeah, and then Craig and I, somebody knew that we were running this boys. I mean, the internet was brand new in 99, you yeah, know? But we had a web page. Yep. And somebody found us, and they called us, and they, they put us on a radio show, and we talked about the boy issue and what was going on with our young men. And yep. And we were pretty brutal about it because we discovered that these young men didn't have anyone in their life that was either affirming them for their gifts and their talents and their abilities or admonishing them for being knuckleheads, right. you know? So they didn't have any of that. And in that void, the one thing they've got is the voice in their head. And that one, as you may know, <laughs> is out to get us. Yeah. You know, so we started talking about some of the issues that we've seen in our weekends and in our groups. And after that show, we thought we'd get like sponsors and mentors that would want to help us out. But what we got over the next three days is over 100 phone calls from single moms looking for help for their boys. Well, there you go. The number of boys being raised by single moms today versus 40 years ago. Yeah. What Can you explain the change? What is that stat? Yeah. From 1940 to 2000, the divorce rate went from like 5% to 50%. So you can see a graph going from 5 up to 50. And then 15 years later, what you see is the male prison population increasing at the same rate as the divorce rate. Wow. And what that tells us is that when dad leaves the house – and this 12-year-old kid no longer has the male nutrients that he needs to be held accountable or to be acknowledged and praised, mm -hmm. there's anger and grief and sadness and frustration, and that starts manifesting behaviors where he starts acting out, and those behaviors get him in trouble, and then 15 years later, that 27-year-old man is in jail. So, Look, kids, and we all make poor decisions, especially when, you know, there's those teenage years where you get pretty self-absorbed, you know, it's yeah. that time when you start to separate from the parents, which is yeah. totally understandable. But if you don't have somebody guiding you and you have the wrong people, yeah. more importantly, guiding you, it's right. just scary what road <laughs> you can go down. And, right. and, um, that stat absolutely blew me away. Yeah. Like the correlation just 
scared the heck out of me. It's a correlation. And, you know, there are a ton of great men who get divorced but still stay engaged, you know. And, right, and, fuck the and, trend. And, and they do what they know they need to do to be there for their kids, you know. I don't want to paint with too wide a brush. This is what the statistics reflect, Chris. You know, without that dad, they're nine times more likely to drop out of school. They're 10 times more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. But they're 20 times more likely to go to jail or prison. We really haven't collectively put a spotlight on those numbers. Like those ones you just rattled off yeah. are staggering. The most staggering for me is they're 20 times more likely to go to prison. That means they're twice as likely to go to prison as they are to abuse dope, which to me is like crazy. That means they're stone cold sober kids going to prison. Right. And it's because, it's because what happened to them. Whenever dad left the scene, you know, that anger, that sadness, that grief, and no way to process it manifests in these behaviors that hurt them and everyone around them. And that's what gets them into trouble. And that's the critical time. And when we show up and we sit in these circles with these guys, that's what Boys to Men does. When fresh arrivals from outside neighborhoods began showing up to their Boys to Men retreats after Columbine, Joe and Craig were immediately humbled by the challenge. It was their first real glimpse of how severe the problems they were facing were. The unfamiliar faces weren't buying in easy, and with kids representing a variety of ethnic neighborhoods, there was racial bullying and random fights. There were also kids with ADD, serious depression, and kids with serious anger issues. Even after they learned how to manage all those factors, the problem with the weekend retreats was that they had no follow-up mechanism. So they evolved their program into bi-weekly gatherings down in Mission Bay, where they'd do regular check-ins, play some football, and have a barbecue. That was a huge step in the right direction, but still logistically challenging. Joe and several of his mentors were spending five hours in the car on Saturdays driving all over San Diego to pick kids up, and then take them home. It just wasn't sustainable. So Craig recommended approaching the schools, and as fate would have it, the first school they spoke to, Spring Valley Middle School, had a counselor by the name of Bruce Crenshaw. Bruce listened patiently to their pitch, nodding his approval. Afterward, he had just one question. How soon can you guys start? And he had us come down there and he put us in a room and he sent these like eight young men in. They didn't know why they were there. And I was there, I was there with uh, one of our leaders, uh, Craig Galliardi and another guy, Anthony Hutchins. And the three of us are sitting there and uh, I go, you guys know why you're here? <laughs> and they're looking at each other and they got attitude and they're going, no. And I go, well, guess. And then they started talking about, you know, smoking in the bathroom right uh bringing a weapon to school <laughs> yeah. and i'm going you did no that's not why no, what you did what <laughs> so they start and pouring they, them and, and, they, they start and, confessing and they're going well, what what man what man and, I, and then i said i said i said you guys are here because mr crenshaw loves you and then i asked him this, this question i said okay i said how many of you guys want to be good men they all race. It's a hand. great question. Yeah. I go, how many of you guys have some good men in your life? None of them raise their hand. Wow. How many of you guys think you're good men now? 
None of them raised their hand. I said, fellas, that's the problem. You know, you all want to be good men and no one's showing you. So welcome the boys to men. My name's Joe. This is Craig. This is Anthony. Mr. Crenshaw has given us permission to sit down with you guys and talk about what it takes to be a good man. So wow. we started with those guys. And then how was their response right oh, to that? It, you know, they were skeptical for right. sure. Right. You know, for sure. But there was some sort of like glimmer of hope, too, that is, is this for real? Yeah. Because like if this is for real, this could be cool. But if these guys are full of shit, yeah. I'm out of here. Ten years into his program, earning trust was something Joe was getting pretty good at. Years earlier, Willie Abercrombie became the youngest member of his program. Willie was just 11 when Joe found him digging around in a flower bed with a trowel during one of his weekends. When he asked Willie what he was doing, he said he was digging his own grave because he didn't think he was going to make it. He came from a very abusive family. And years later, when Willie was dangled off the side of a building by his abusive stepfather, Joe took him to court, got him emancipated, and then took him in as his own. Willie is now 32, and he works for Delta Airlines in Utah. He's a brother, a cousin, and an uncle in Joe's family. And in fact, when he was 27 years old, he took Joe's last name. Then there's Joe Ross, who's 22 now. Joe Ross joined Boys to Men when he was just 12. Today, he's one of their most respected mentors, having come a very long way. The first time I met Joe, I was actually sitting in detention, and I got a pass to go to a classroom I know the school doesn't use, so I was like, okay, this is weird, and it said Boys to Men. So I was like, what the heck is this? And the moment I stepped foot through the door in the classroom, I see this big, almost six foot, 200 plus pound guy wearing a suit. And instantly I was like, oh crap, it's a probation officer. Thinking that I put on my tough guy face and I'm not going to let this guy scare me straight. And then when we get started, he just starts smiling. I'm like, this guy's weird. <laughs> and he starts talking about himself and what he does for a living and then he starts talking about what boys to men is and boys to men is going to be there to support you give you the tools you need to succeed and i've constantly over the years you know i've been in and out with several counselors so i just thought this was same old bs that they always give me and then the one thing that really hit home for me is when joe told me we will never tell you what to do and as a 12, 13-year-old boy, hell yeah, that's music to my ears. I never want to be told what to do. And I still remember going home with my boysman pamphlets and showing my mom and telling her, I want to do this. I want to do this. So when you were worrying that it was a probation officer, what kind of trouble had you been getting into at that point in your life? Any kind of trouble I wanted to get my hands on, constantly disrespecting teachers, cussing them out, getting kicked out of class. I had my own preferred seating in the dean's office because I was literally there like every day. And it was just more than a normal teenage boy. Like I said, constantly suspended, kicked out. I could start seeing more and more disappointment on my mom's face. The teachers are now starting to tell me if I don't change how I act, then I'm going to end up in jail. I'm going to end up in a gang. 
And for some time, I didn't believe that. But then it's like, wow, they're right. They they kind of guessed every single time I'm going to get in trouble. And it happens. Mm. My mom was raising four kids all on her own. My dad was very abusive to my mom growing up. He left when I was two. So I technically don't know my dad at all. I can't even say what he looks like. But I just know that he used to beat my mom. He used to hit my sister, my eldest brother a lot. So it was very hard growing up. My mom raising four kids on her own, always under that poverty line, constantly having to worry if we're going to pay rent or pay the electric bill or pay for food, whatever was first, always getting hand-me-downs every year for school. So I never really got brand new school clothes. It was very difficult on my mom because she had to play the role of two parents for all four kids. And I know it wasn't easy, but being a young boy, I didn't know how hard it actually was. And so at one point I noticed my mom going through a form of addiction with prescription pills and that was her coping mechanism, you know, raising all four kids on her own plus having to work two jobs. So my mom would be gone from seven in the morning to about midnight. I would rarely see my mom. I would be very grateful if there was food ready for us after school, but nine times out of 10 there wasn't because she just didn't have time. And so coming to Boys to Men was a relief. I noticed once I started coming that it relieved stress off her back because she knew I was actually going somewhere that is safe and that I'm getting the tools that I need to change the way I was acting, the path that I was going on. What was it that convinced you this time that it was something different? It wasn't the same old stuff that your counselor had been telling you about before. What really, really had me determine if this is what I actually wanted was a very traumatic experience I had. Um, I remember doing my homework and I just hear this loud thud. My mom scream. I go into her room. She's having a seizure right in front of my eyes. Hmm. I'm a 13-year-old boy, have no idea what this is, don't know what to expect. I literally feel, I have goosebumps right now just talking about it. You know, I thought my mom was dying in front of me and I was watching it. Um, my brother was freaking out. He started yelling. He was only two years older than me. He didn't know what to do. The only thing I could think of was call 911. And I lived at that place for six years. I know my address. But the moment they asked me, couldn't think of anything. I was just so worried about my mom. And the first person I called was Joe. Like I said, I grew up, you know, just my mom, no dad, anywhere in sight. So needing someone right then and there has always been hard for me, you know, to open up and trust. But it, at that specific time, I had no one else to turn to. So I remember calling Joe and a few of my other mentors, and they sat with me bawling my ass out all night in the hospital until I got a chance to see my mom. You know, I believe Joe's wife called him, and he was like, I'm sorry, I can't. One of my boy's mom's in the hospital. I can't come home. And just physically seeing them stay and seeing him put aside his own personal stuff for me, a kid he doesn't really know that well, a kid he, he's not related to, it really opened my eyes and holy crap, there are good people in this world. There are good men in this world in San Diego. And so when I saw that, I told myself, I don't want to be that guy no one can call. I don't want that. I want to be the person, if someone needs me, I'm there to the best of my ability. And to this day, that still shows me that these men are legit. These guys actually mean what they say. This is what a good man looks like. 
and this is who I want to be. Now, 10 years later, I'm on the other side being able to provide the help you need. You know, I don't want another boy similar to me have to experience the same thing I had to, nor do I want them, if they do experience that, to feel like they're alone. I want them to know that we support them, that we are there for them thick and thin. It's like verifying that they're not a bad kid. I'm actually telling you, you are not a bad kid. You are doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this. Keep it up, keep going. And when they hear that from an outside perspective, when I mean outside perspective, it's not a parent, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a counselor, I'm just some random guy that comes every week to hear you out, you know? That, I think, hits home to the kids because it's literally an outside perspective of a complete random person. And so when they see that, it's like, holy crap, he must actually be telling the truth because he doesn't know me. Unlike my teachers and my family who are probably going to lie to me to make me feel good. At least that's how I felt. Yeah. And that's how I kind of actually see my kids because when they say, oh, my teacher said I did a good job, but I don't think she meant it because she gave me an F. <laughs> you know, they're probably not going to believe the teacher, but we don't give out grades in Boys to Men. I imagine having multiple men in those sessions, is that helpful too, as opposed to sort of one-on-one -on -one with a counselor? Yes, definitely. Uh, as majority of people would see, you know, a lot of counseling is one-on-one. -on -one. For me, I found that very intimidating. This one person is constantly looking at me. They're judging everything I say, you know, so it's like, I don't know if I can really open up to them. But when you have a whole group dynamic of five or six it's not that I'm just talking to him. I'm talking to him, 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 and him. And the cool part is it's not a one-sided point of view. You know, if I tell them I got in trouble at home because my mom told me to take out the trash and I chose to continue playing my video games, instead of one sounding board, I got five sounding boards. So I may not agree with what he says, but the third guy, absolutely, you're right. But if you have that one person, you only get one. Yeah, there, there's only one shot at getting through to you, whereas with exactly. group, you've got five different angles exactly. of attack. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what I've noticed over the years, it actually works both ways in boys to men. I've seen men mentor the boys, and I've actually seen the boys mentor the men. A few years ago, one of our mentors was going through a very nasty divorce, and you could just see the stress on his face. He's lost some weight. He was going through it. I don't remember necessarily what the boy said, but I just remember the boy asking that mentor a question and the mentor just lost it. Mm. And, you know, we were like, oh, crap. Like, you know, is he good? And he was like, I really never thought of it that way. Yeah. And it was just like, boom. Yeah. You know, like, like I said, it works both ways. 20 years into this mission, Joe, Craig, and their team can point to a ton of success stories. Each one has the power to carry them forward when the inevitable heartbreaks do come. Not every kid can be reached. Unfortunately, while most welcome the help, not all of them do. What is it like for you when you see these kids finally let their guard down and you start to see things working? Because you've been doing this long enough oh. now where I imagine you could spot it a mile away. I'll tell you this, Chris, it never gets old. I can tell you, we did a training two weeks ago, okay? And there were these two boys, and they were from the same school, and they were running in the same gang. And there's a point on the weekend where these guys 
take the deep dive and get super real. You know, mm. we facilitate that. And the first kid that went made the decision not to give up the gang, that he would rather die for the gang than give it up. And the kid watching him, his jaw dropped. He saw the reality of where his life was going and what his options were and realized that he was 15 and he could be dead by 18, 19, the way he was running. And he came right up to me and said, hey, can I go next? And then when he got to, you know, whether or not to leave the gang, he said he wanted to, but didn't know how. And, you know, we came up with a strategy. I just asked him, I said, what could you do that would be honorable enough that the gangs would support this choice? And he talked about how he had been a part of a boxing club and that they were supporting him being in boxing. And the club that he happened to be in is a good friend of mine. And he hasn't gone back because he disrespected a coach there and was afraid to go back. Mm. So that was on Sunday. On Tuesday, I picked him up from school, took him down to the boxing club. We cleaned up the mess. We resolved the issue with the coach. They welcomed him back. This has been two weeks. I could read you a series of texts. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I, I do. do. I got to find it. So pause yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. Okay. So this was two weeks ago. And that he did the training, mm. and I checked in with him Tuesday night, and I said, hey, you still training? Yeah, I'm actually heading over there right now. Are the OGs giving you a pass so far? He said, yeah, they're okay with it. I said, sweet, super proud of you, dude. Stay with it. You deserve to be free and successful. Thanks a lot for the help. You're doing the work, brother. Thank you. So He said that to you. Yeah, so yeah. we're two weeks into this, here's the interesting thing. I've already planned a boxing tournament with ABC Youth Foundation, which is the boxing club that he boxed for, mm. another group called Boxers for Christ, and the San Diego Urban Collaborative. So the four of us have been working for months. We're doing a tournament down on 50th and Imperial. And when I told him that, he said, that's a block from my house. That's my territory. Mm. Like, you know, they got yeah. to protect the block, right? Right. And I said, excellent. You invite the OGs to come watch you box so they can see what you've been doing all summer. Mm. So the plan is to keep this guy off the streets and keep him focused on boxing and training. And so far it's worked. And man, my prayer for him is that he just stays with it and that he demonstrates to the OGs that he's got something else that he's working on that's, you know, working. Right. And what about that other kid? Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. It must be tough for the gang kids, right? You're joining a gang for protection, aren't you? Exactly. You know, they're providing everything that we're providing. Protection, safety, family, purpose, being part of something bigger than yourself. And the gangs are right there to swoop them up and bring them in. And it's just if they're into the nefarious things, then it's inevitable that that's where you're going. Not only is it inevitable, but it's expected and it's honored and it's praised and celebrated, and they feel good about themselves. This is how they move up, right. you know? And so we're trying to shift that paradigm and offering them a chance to take a step into becoming the men they really want to be. Because none of these guys woke up and said, you know, 
I'd love to be a dope dealer and a gangster and hopefully die at 18 or 19 or spend my life in prison. That sounds like a great idea. That's not where this, this, this happened. This all manifested out of some tragedy, some event in their life where they made a decision. Well, I guess this is the way it's going to be. I better find a way to survive this. So now they've got this unresolved anger and sadness and grief. And through that, they manifested these patterns of behaviors that have gotten them by. But it's not who they want to be. And they don't have anybody guiding them or demonstrating or modeling anything else for them. All we're doing is model the truth. Be honest. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Mm. And give them permission to do the same. And they're so freaking hungry for it that when they get a little taste of it, they just kind of glam onto it. And they'll tell us everything. They pour their freaking guts out to us. And they're dying to get rid of these secrets too, Chris. I mean, literally dying. Before releasing this episode, I wanted to check in with Joe on the progress of that kid at the boxing gym. Sadly, he told me the kid's gone dark and stopped showing up at the gym. And that other kid, the one who said he'd die for the gang? Well, a couple weeks ago, he tried to commit suicide. But the silver lining here is that that kid is back attending boys to men meetings. These stories, the good and the bad, all come with the territory. But thanks to people like Joe, Craig, Joe Ross, and the army of good mentors volunteering their time and their focus into this program, lives are being saved. And the goal is to save a lot more. To that end, Joe and Craig are busy mapping out a sustainable scalability model so they can make the program available countywide. Their next step is to get to 100 schools. I pressed them for some cost details, which Joe was happy to share and put in perspective. And what that costs is about $20,000 per year per school. Per school, okay. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Which so, is not really that much. It's really not. Not when you look at the fact that to incarcerate one boy for a year is about $94,000 in the county. Mm. $94,000 to keep a kid in juvie for a year. And I can't even begin to imagine how many kids that have been redirected in their lives and avoided some of the pitfalls because they've had men in their lives that are there to listen mm. and to accept and to encourage and to support and hold them accountable for the choices they're making. Because this is a self-directed program. You know, we never tell the boys what to do. We do tell them what we did mm. and we do ask them, what do you want and what are you willing to do different? Mm. And when they make those choices, our job as mentors is to support them and hold them accountable to those choices. And you know, they either do it or they don't. Right. But we're there to, to check them and say, you know, you said you wanted a better relationship with your mom. You said you were going to take out the trash without her asking. Mm -hmm. Did you do that? Yes. Oh, well, great. How did that work? Well, you know, it kind of opened up a conversation and um, she was grateful and uh, we didn't fight nearly as much. And <laughs> OK, did you do that? No. OK, great. How did that work? It's the same old, same old man. Yeah. She's still all over me and I'm pissed, and we're not talking. I go, okay, well, what do you want to do this week? So we're not there to judge them, Chris. You're just there to take we're an inventory. We're just there to listen right. and accept and encourage, support, yeah. and hold accountable. So if somebody's listening to this, and, you know, they're five counties or five states away, and they want to learn more about how they could do something like this, where do I send them? Boystomen.com? 
Uh, that's the San Diego address. Okay. Send them to boystomenusa.org. Okay. Yeah. In San Diego, boystomen.org. Okay. So boystomen.org. Yeah. Boystomenusa.org is where you can actually get the whole, because you guys have like the template thing. We have the template thing. We actually have a new community rollout team that we have what we call boys to men in a box mm. where we have all the policies, all the protocols, fundraising models. And we've got a team of guys that will help a new community roll out an in school. We've got curriculum, you know, it's a whole night. We've, and, but the, the greatest thing is we've got testimony. We have case studies, university case studies. We've got testimonies from, you know, administrators and, and parents and, um, you know, you know, that that they can show to their local school mm. that says, apparently this, this thing works. Right. Um, can we give it a go? And um, and I tell you what, you know, we're an open source program. So like all of those materials are available on a Google Docs page. And I know for sure that there are boys to men communities existing around the planet that we have no idea who they are or what they're doing. But the source is out there, and all they need to do is contact us and get a password. And we have given this program away. And that's why we're in England, Canada, Germany, Austria, South Africa, India, New Zealand, Australia, because the whole thing's been a giveaway. That's awesome. Well, Joe, thank you again for your time <laughs> and for what you're doing. And can't wait to see you, Great. obviously, at the 100 Wave Challenge, man. Yeah. Thank you for being our champion, Chris. Of course. Awesome. Thank you. It's pretty clear the world can use more people like Joe Sigurdsson and his wonderful team at Boys to Men. If you'd like to meet them, I hope you'll join me in San Diego on September 21st and bring as many friends as you can. You can even join the People Who Surf team as we're setting up an ambitious target of $10,000. Feel free to DM me on Instagram at People Who Surf Show if you have any questions. Of course, I know many of you can't be there, but if you'd like to support the cause nonetheless, please visit boystomen.org or peoplewhosurf.com to see how you could donate a few bucks to our fundraising team. I thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this special episode with Joe and Joe. If you did, I hope you'll pass it along to a friend as well. Now, if you're new to the show, Please dive into some previous episodes and let me know what you think. All right, that's it for this week. I thank you all, and I'll see you soon.